let's think about and let's talk about the reason why they were targeted. It was because they were successful. It was a backlash to success. When you frame the conversation that way, doesn't that make us see ourselves differently? Hello and welcome to Acting Up, the podcast that dives deep into the world of TV and film that highlights our people, our communities, and our stories. I'm your host, Courtney Wills, Entertainment Director at The Grio, and this week we are speaking with one of my favorite filmmakers, Don Porter. This is the woman behind the incredible John Lewis documentary, Good Trouble, also that fantastic doc about Obama and his photographer, The Way I See It. We're gonna get into her new Apple Plus series, The Me You Can't See, that she directed alongside Oprah Winfrey and Prince Harry. And we'll also get into Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer, which is coming out June 18th on Nat Geo. And obviously, whew, I mean, at least attempts to tackle the terrifying history of Tulsa and sheds light on the fact that Tulsa was not an isolated incident and that there was a lot of stuff leading up to it. And a lot of that stuff feels like the same stuff we're dealing with now. It's still Mental Health Month, and we are also coming up on the 100th year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. And gosh, Hollywood is really pouncing on the centennial commemoration of this horrifying event that sadly we still know very little about 100 years after the fact. I have like a bajillion really cool projects about Tulsa that are coming out that I want to tell you guys about, uh, whether it's music documentaries, docu-series. There is a lot happening around Tulsa this month to commemorate that centennial anniversary. One of the people who is tackling Tulsa on screen is Don Porter, and she's my next guest on Acting Up. The Emmy-nominated filmmaker whose body of work includes docs like Gideon's Army, Good Trouble, and The Way I See It, recently joined forces with Oprah Winfrey and Prince Harry for their new Apple Plus series on mental health called The Me You Can't See. And she's about to unveil her latest project, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer, over at Nat Geo on June 18th. Don joined me on Acting Up to talk about what it was like to tackle such a monumental event in our history and how Tulsa wasn't the only place targeted at that time. Her film and her insight really illuminate the fact that we are in some troubling times right now and we have been here before and some of those parallels that she pulled out of the history comparing then to now are just really kind of mind-blowing she also dishes details about the me you can't see which is making so many waves ever since it came out a few days ago it has some really raw honest conversations with people like lady gaga and prince harry and oprah and also like regular everyday people who are there to explain what their experiences with mental health disorders have been, what getting through their trauma has been like. And it really is something to see. And I'm so grateful that Don was willing to take some time out to fill us in on all the details. Take a listen. Hi, Don. Hi, how are you? 
I literally just ended the Tulsa doc. So I'm rattled, but you did it again. And I'm so excited to talk to you about this project as I always am excited to talk to you, but this one particularly, obviously, because we're coming up on the centennial anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, which in all honesty, I never knew about until I watched the first episode of Watchmen. That's most people's experience of the the race massacre in Tulsa is through popular television, is through Watchmen. And, you know, I feel like we actually have a big thank you to Watchmen for that, that it was such superior filmmaking that people were intrigued, but also couldn't believe this was real. And, And that's how I came to it. Like, this cannot be real. And then what I discussed with National Geographic is it wasn't just Tulsa. There are actually race massacres in 26 countries across America. Yeah. And when you think of that history, it just kind of floors you. But then it also, you know, what I really, really wanted to lean into, and this is why I think it's important to have creators of color making these projects, is the resilience. I'm like, I am so proud that I came from these people. Yes. It was attempted to massacre them. Yeah. And let's think about and let's talk about the reason why they were targeted. It was because they were successful. Yeah. It was a backlash to success. And when you frame the conversation that way, doesn't that make us see ourselves differently? Because so often the stories about the Black community are about not being able to accomplish, not being able to thrive, not being successful, about being victims. And here it's, they were too good and they were targeted because of that. Exactly. And you just hit on like the outline of this interview. Is Black excellence white America's biggest fear? I mean, let's ask President Barack Obama. A tan suit would send people, you know, when I look at some of the criticisms of President Obama, it was that he's arrogant or haughty. Those are all ways of saying you're out of your place. Mm-hmm. The place that we would seek to put you in, you refuse to be categorized that way. And so it's obviously not all white America, but I think it's enough that it is a concern. We need to realize that and internalize that. And I think for decades, Black people were trying to prove we were good enough. Maybe we need to accept that we are more than good enough and understand that envy can be dangerous. I have two boys, and when I think about their self-esteem, they're always, you know, they want to be the best at things. They want to be admired for things. And it just, it really has me thinking a lot about how I want to encourage their self-esteem and to not have them dim their lights. Yes, totally. And I mean, I was talking to William Harper Jackson yesterday about the Underground Railroad. I don't know if you saw that, but... I haven't seen it yet. And uh, you know who told me to see it is Oprah. She's like, she literally said, like, have you seen Underground Railroad yet? And I was like, ah. It's so good. Oh my gosh. Well, now I don't want to spoil it for you, but I was going to tell you. Don't spoil it. I'm going to say it. Okay. Well, that came up, right? In this fictional story. It's set in a different time, slavery times, but same idea. Like this idea that Black success, Black excellence was just way too much, even for the most forward-thinking white person to bear. And then you look at, you know, our last 10 years and like what happened right after Obama was Trump, (laughs) you know, like this knee-jerk reaction of like, they are getting way too good 
way too comfortable, way too self-sufficient. Like we've got to remind them of their place. And that's a through line that I see in fictional stories and I see that are finally being told, I think, about us and by us. Mm -hmm. And it's something that really came up for me in this documentary. But aside from that, I, I have to tell you, just in the first couple minutes, again, I was blown away by your knack for just dropping in what feels like the most simple little fact that just has the ability to blow your mind. Like Malcolm X and MLK met once. Like what? One time. (laughs) I was an Afghan studies major. There's actually a photo that was always up on the wall in my house where I grew up of them together. And now I know like, oh, holy shit, it was that one time. But in my mind, they were debating and they were leading, you know, opposite sides of the same fight. And I know that, um, you know, their wives ended up being friends, but never would I have imagined that they were only in the same physical space one time in life. That's nuts. And, you know, I think that speaks to the deep significance of both of those two leaders in not just the African-American community, but in American history. I mean, they occupy so much space rightfully. And, you know, I was with Patrice Cullors recently. And, you know, one of the points she made to me about her leadership and her leadership style is that the leaders who came before her died before the age that she is now. Mm. And she's, she's like, I don't want to be dead. I don't want to be a martyr for the cause. We had to kind of invent that discussion between those two leaders because the world didn't really allow it to happen. And so I, I think it's up to artists to, you know, kind of excavate those conversations and make sure there was a conversation certainly happening between those people and between the people around them. And that conversation mm-hmm. was really important. It's just terribly tragic that they didn't get the opportunity to have it so we have it for them so crazy just mind blown with one little thing that just kind of makes me rethink everything I ever imagined about those two men and that's that's the thing that's really um hitting me a lot as I see more and more of these projects I mean even this subject. This is not the only documentary coming out even this year about Tulsa and not the only one from a really incredible filmmaker. You've got Stanley Nelson doing another one. It's like the Battle of Aretha's over here. We've got it going on for Tulsa. But the truth is, until you guys, until people like yourselves tell these stories, everything we know is kind of imagined. You know, like we really are piecing together facts and trying to figure out what it would look like. That was so nuts about Underground Railroad. It's like, what did they actually look like, sound like, feel like? It's all it's all archetypes up until now. You know, if you don't have strong roots, you blow away, right? And so part of, of what I think, um, you know, Stanley's master, there are projects from some young artists that I'm so excited about. We cannot tell these stories too many times. So I'm like, wherever you find these stories, wherever you access them is important. I think you need to watch all of them because they each address a different, it's such a big story that no one project is going to cover the whole thing. And so Mm -hmm. I'm like, (laughs) so excited and honored to be in this time of black filmmaking where we have the opportunity 
to have more than one eyes on the prize. You know, we have the opportunity. We're having, you know, people seek us out to tell these stories. So, and that's what we need more of. You know, we need to keep filling this pipeline with creators who have different takes and different styles. But, you know, the truth at the core of it remains the same and that it's, we are targeted for our excellence. A hundred percent. Why did you take the approach that you did to this story? Because, you know, we will see, and I agree with Dawn, you guys should watch every single one of these projects. Like too much is never enough when it comes to telling these stories. But why did you approach, like for me, I, I thought it really focused on like the red summer and I felt a lot of parallels of that time where things were brewing and now, and exactly what you said at the top of this conversation was it was not just Tulsa, you know, this was a buildup and it was, it spanned across Arkansas to DC to Chicago afterward. Like this was not an isolated event, horrifying as it was. Why did you take that approach and structure your story that way? Um, I really appreciate you noticing that. <laughs> and um, it was not isolated and it was not Southern. It was just American. And so to me, it was really important to put Tulsa in context with the other massacres that Washington, D.C., in front of our nation's capital, they shot black people down in the streets. That was an important story to tell. East St. Louis, same situation. You know, Elaine, Arkansas, tiny Elaine, Arkansas, the brutality that was accepted against blacks was just raging through the country. And it's actually exactly what you put your finger on, which is I saw too many parallels to where we are, that if we write off violence against black and brown bodies as outlier, we're missing the story. There is, you do not have to be a conspiracy theorist to see what's right in front of you. And so if we do not take on systemic police violence, if we do not take on casual racism that his was, you know, it didn't start with the election of President Obama, but it kind of started to bubble up. And then Trump just ripped that right open. And people feel that it's okay to say things, to do things, to behave in a certain way. I see too many parallels at that time. And so I want us to know our history so we don't repeat it. Yeah. To know for the people who are targets, to know you're targeted because you're great. Uh, yeah, it is. It is exactly that. You're not afraid of people who are weak, right? Are we afraid of weak people? No, of course not. Right. We're afraid of people who are challenging things. So in some sense, the challenges we see to black and brown autonomy and success and is probably an indication that we're doing better than we think. Mm -hmm. So for as many stories that we hear about people who are struggling, who are, and, and those struggles are real, but there's also, there is a sense of people on the rise. Yes. People will try and stop that progress. So yes. if we want to make sure that that progress is not stopped, we have to understand that this is what happens when you start to achieve. It's also, I think, so important to contextualize, like you said, like these parallels. You know, I mean, we're, I want to scream, like, stop sharing Karen memes. Like, they're not funny. This documentary literally like laid out how Karens can kill. Like that's a good title. Karen can kill. Yeah. I mean maybe the title of this podcast episode, Karen's can kill you. I mean they did. They can. They are. It's not nothing. It's not a phone call. It's not a 
you know, a viral video, like, holy shit, entire, entire massacres stemming from that same seed. I mean, I am the parent of two black boys. And when I saw over and over, you know, the false allegation against black boys of harassment against the, you know, integrity of a white woman, and then you see those those Karen activities, particularly the woman in the Ramble in Central Park. When oh, you, so when mad you, at that bird watcher. Like he was like, no, it's cool. Let's just move on. When you I wanted her, her so. You see, yeah. she changes and she says, I'm going to tell them. She is, you know, as Sillian Green points out so beautifully, she's tapping into a century of violence. And of power. She knew and she power. had it. I'm going to use it right in your face. We need to understand that for what it is, which is you're exactly right. You know, Karen, Karen can get you killed. Karen's can definitely get you killed. And so many of the other things that you pointed out, even when you're talking about the crucial role of the Black press at that time and the work of Ida B. Wells and, you know, telling us the story of the Elaine 12. And I'm instantly like, didn't know that nickname but central park five but this but this but this like same shit different decade really Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and understanding i mean i'm obsessed with ida b wells like a a lot of people are but i'm really obsessed with her i did not know that she crossed swamps into a lane snuck into the state to take people's stories and then bring them out i mean that woman with her four children and, you know, started kindergarten in Chicago uh, for black children because there was no kindergarten. There was no early education for black children. So she started it. She is one of the most remarkable figures in American history. But to know that there was resistance, that we were not just mowed down like, you know, sheep in a field, but that there was an active resistance. So, you know, several of our characters say they won the battle that day. And you will be overcome by sheer numbers, but the bravery and the resilience and the resistance, like that's our legacy too, is that we have always been a people who would fight odds and often would prevail. That's what I want my kids to know that that's who you come from. Yeah. That's your history. Absolutely. And finally, I mean, say what you will, like the majority of the episodes of this podcast are about holding Hollywood accountable and like, this is not enough. But also, yes, like everything you said earlier, like we are in a kind of golden age of Black led projects and Black stories being told. And I'd rather have 10 Tulsa stories or 10, you know, the Underground Railroads and them and us to pick apart and ask, is that too violent? Is it too true? Is it too brutal? Then to have nothing and have to make it up and have no roots. So this is the kind of other side of that coin. And it is equally brutal, you know, especially because it's all true. This wasn't a Hollywood production. This is facts. And those facts are brutal, but in some way they are. They're making me feel more connected and more proud than ever of what and who I come from. And I'm starting to like recognize that in a way that I think I ever could have if there hadn't been this kind of renaissance and this gates opening to creators like yourself. And there's one more thing I want to talk about with Tulsa because we have another project to talk to you about. But having you at the helm of this project telling this story, there was a choice that was very obvious to me. And it's when one of the subjects is talking about Elaine, Arkansas, 
and this photo that was ingrained in her memory of the woman who was shot dead, skirt pulled up, you know, buttocks exposed. And you show the picture and you blurred it. And I'm thinking you didn't have to do that. And I'm wondering, number one, I'm grateful that you did. And she says something like there was no dignity in her death. And then we see the photo. And I thought, Dawn has given her some dignity. And I wanted to know for you, like, what went into that choice? We so often take for granted the sexual violence against Black women that we become numb to it. And I think we wanted to, and this was also National Geographic, this was a conversation we had with them because it was, first of all, it was important to us to include that photo to see, like, there's something stark about that level of brutality. But it was important to, in a way, call attention to it without it being voyeuristic, to allow you to look and to see her. And I wish that I knew her name. I wish I knew her in life. You know, a lot of my work, I really try and give people their dignity in life. I'm working on a project with Frontline right now about the Emmett Till list. You're going to love it. I mean, it's tough, but you're going to love it. But one of the things that we spent so much time doing that is having these people have a life and not only be known in their death. This woman, we didn't have that opportunity because that was robbed from her. But we could give her some modesty, you know, that was deserved. She's a woman. She's a person. We could give her that so and tell her story a little bit. Well, I'm glad you did. That's just one of the many things that makes you this work. I'm so glad that you are. Um, And thank you for sharing all of that with me. I could talk to you about Tulsa forever, um, but I want to move on to this other really big, important project that you're dropping (laughs) to, because I guess you just have eight hands or something. This mental health project with Oprah Winfrey and Prince Harry, like, how did you get roped into that? And I think it's just coming at such an important time. It's Mental Health Month, of course. So we've been talking to all of our listeners, trying to point them to resources, trying to turn them on to projects like this, where they feel seen or understood. And I wanted to know for you, like, what was your entry point into this project and why was it important for you to do? Well, when Oprah calls, you you know. You send her a voicemail? You didn't send her a voicemail? I will tell you one thing that I've not shared with anybody else, which is, so I met her in person and, you know, we had this whole meeting, but then it was about a week later, I was at the dentist and my dentist is a black woman. And uh, normally if you're at the doctor, you let the phone yeah. ring. So, but my phone goes off and I see it says Oprah, right? And you so- You had Oprah's number in your phone already. Don Porter is saying to all of us here, just so you know. Okay. And so, thank God the doctor's a black woman. And I said, I'm really sorry. I have to take this. It's Oprah. She goes, oh, my God, you have to take that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She could have been drilling you and you'd be like, all right. Sorry. I got to take this. So, you know, it's such an important topic for people of color. We keep our things that make us vulnerable hidden Mm -hmm. in our families or from our friends or from our places of work. So knowing that Oprah was behind it, I knew that wasn't going to be an issue. We were going to look for people who look like me and look like her. And we were going to tell those stories with compassion and understanding and not being voyeuristic and not um, abusing people. We were going to, you know, make them feel safe. We were going to honor them. But the other piece of it was, I was just really curious about Oprah and why it was so important to her. 
because it was clearly important to her. I mean, you want to talk about eight hands? That woman is like, I once said to her, I was like, you're shaming the rest of us in pandemic because you issue a groundbreaking interview every week. You're reading 79 books and then you keep doing five specialists and you're doing the series. Like, mm-hmm. But she gave so much attention to this. I mean, we would have meeting, you know, um, with Prince Harry every other week. We would talk about the subjects. We would talk about how we were going to approach the stories. We would talk about the mix of stories. We would talk about the range of conditions. And so she was super focused, like a laser beam, you know, when when she's on. And the other thing was the team she put in place. So we had a team of advisors of experts of different races, nationalities, genders around the world. We had story producers who were an inclusive community who were reaching out and looking for different stories. And then we had a group of directors who were different races and genders. I mean, we had such a big team. That's what the cachet, the clout of an Oprah Winfrey, she had Apple really resource this series so that when pandemic hit and we had to really turn and figure out how we were going to finish this, you know, we could do it and we could do it honoring the way we set out to do it, which is respect giving people time to form relationships and really open up. And then the cherry on top of the cake was Oprah opening up and Prince Harry opening up. And I think they were motivated. I can't speak for why they were motivated, but I can say I know they appreciated the openness of all of our subjects. Mm. And it didn't occur to either of them to not also be as open as to share as much as we were asking from everybody else. And they did that. I think they were more worried about the focus being on them because they're so well-known. And so that was more their hesitancy than sharing personal things. They didn't hold back. So, But just that, I mean, gosh, so much of your work is about piecing together the past. But this project is just so much more present. It's happening now. I mean, we just learned because of Oprah's interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle that, you know, Meghan was suicidal. Like that was a huge revelation And of course, Prince Harry has been active in the mental health space, but I feel like for me, I suddenly give a lot more weight than I would have to what he has to say, knowing that he's been standing by a Black woman who was at that depth of despair that we can all, I think, relate to. You know, I think we look at him a different way than we did six months ago. Oh, completely. I will tell you when I first came on to the project, Oprah was like, you should meet Harry. And I was like okay. (laughs) Like, is he going to come to your house? Like, what what are you talking about? (laughs) So we went together to meet him. And my producer says to me, you got to bring a gift. Like, you know, he's got a new baby. You got to bring a gift. Oh, okay. So I, I was finishing up the way I see it. You know, the, the, that little thing you did. That little thing, (laughs) that little thing I did. So we were filming in the African-American museum in the Smithsonian Museum on the mall. So I went to the gift store and I got him like a red, black and green onesie and some books about brown babies and like loving yourself. And so I put this like little package together. He flipped out. He loved it. He was like, this is his culture. This is his background. And he just like couldn't get over the gift. And he loved it. He kept remarking on it. And I don't know what you give a prince, but I figured he had everything. And he had a baby. So why do we only give women the gifts? You know, it's baby too. Yeah. So Prince Harry strikes me as very curious and very respectful. Mm-hmm. And I think despite the fact that he comes from where he comes from, he also feels a little bit like an outsider. And so 
I think he really understands and is, you know, has a lot of, a lot more empathy and a lot more in common with people of different races than most people would think. So, Did the pandemic as a creator and telling a story like this about mental health, the audience kind of changed on you like midway, like all of a sudden the entire world and especially this country and especially black people in this country and especially, especially black women in this country were in the midst of a mental health crisis. I don't care who you are, what you have or haven't been through, like everyone was dealing with some major shit. So did that change your approach? hundred percent. I mean, when we started the question was, are people who haven't been through a mental health crisis, are they going to understand? Are they going to feel it? Are they going to be able to get what we're talking about? So, you know, check. But also remember, it was George Floyd's murder and hundreds of thousands of people around the world taking to the streets to talk about. That was a very traumatic event. And I know, like for me as a mother, we're already in isolation. I'm already worried about my kids. And now I could see them like shutting down. We could literally just kind of rounded a corner where they felt like with mask and we we knew how to do it. They could leave the house. And then and then that happened. And I, I, I had some, you know, very well meaning friends and they would, you know, talk to my kids or say, like, I, I'm so I'm so sorry for or me, I'm so sorry for you. I'm like, this is not about me. This is about you (laughs) and people who wanted to kind of say like, what can I do? I'm like, you can Google, like, (laughs) that's what you should do. Like I am not doing your race work for you. And I think that seeing the bravery of the people in our series also working on red summer, they kind of allowed me, they kind of stiffened my spine a little bit to, to be like, back up. Don't talk to my children. Yeah. specific question for me I'm happy to answer you but you need to do your own work right and and like I didn't go out and murder a bunch of people I don't y'all did (laughs) y'all did (laughs) so yeah come back when you're ready yeah I am not your race teacher right and if I'm only black friend that's a problem that's a problem right and thanks for letting me know by the way yes right Oh, Don, thank you so much for your candor, for your time, for your incredible talent. I have not seen The Oprah Project, but I know it will be great. But man, Tulsa, you guys, like if you watch one thing this month, let it be that. Um, I'm still debating like, when do I start showing my kids this kind of stuff? But it feels like for damn sure sooner than, you know, 38 when I'm seeing it. Right? You know, um, I mean, I don't know how old your kids are. Little, like four Little. and six. I wouldn't do four and six, but, <laughs> but you know, um, 11, 12, those kids understand because they're seeing so much and we really can't discount the reporting on police violence is important, but it's also traumatizing to our children. And so understanding that it's not open season on black bodies, that we have resisted, that we have fought back, but also that we have people who are proud and strong and fighting to protect them, um, putting that in context, I think that that's important. I think that that part is important too. But also forgiving ourselves if we can't watch right away. You know, this will be, after it's on National Geographic, it'll be on Hulu. Come to it when you're ready. You know, come to it when you're in the right state of mind. Maybe read a book, maybe watch Watchmen again, and then see the real stories. But I also think people will find 
humanity. They will find strength. It is a tough story. Whenever I would say, like, I love this series, some people are like, you love massacres? And I'm like, no, I love the bravery of the Tulsa victims who gave their testimony. I love the reverend who is pushing for reparations. I love that our reporter, Deneen Brown, is following in the footsteps of Ida B. Wells. I love that it's a Black woman who is from Oklahoma. She's our guide. So it's not an outsider. Um, It's a person who understands and respects what it means to be like from that state. Also, like, who knew there were so many Black Oklahomans? Right. Right. (laughs) And who knew there was forensic, what is it, forensic anthropologist? Forensic anthropology with Phoebe Stubblefield. I was like, you can't make this up. It's a Black forensic anthropologist doing this story. I was like, this is too good. That was too good. I need like a whole primetime series about, I didn't know that job existed, but now I want to know about everything that they do. Awesome. John, thanks so much. Thanks for being a guest on Acting Up. Can't wait to talk to you again. I hope it's soon. I hope it's soon too. I always love talking to you. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening to Acting Up. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. Follow us on Instagram at actingup.pod. Acting Up is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Courtney Wills and produced by Cameron Blackwell.